0: Good afternoon. My name is Michael. I serve as one of the elders here at Covenant Hope Church. If you're visiting, it's great to have you with us. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open to the book of Jonah. We're in chapter 3, back there in the Old Old Testament. God's grace is amazing, isn't it? During the 1600s, the American colonies experienced particularly extra grace from God. It's a moment from 1735 to 1740, now called the Great Awakening. You could also call it a revival. Revival. Revival is when God sovereignly pours out his spirit in a profound and unusual way. He uses the ordinary means of evangelism, and he bears extraordinary fruit. During the First Great Awakening, thousands upon thousands in city after city after city were coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield preached on the holiness of God, the danger of sin, the need for the Holy Spirit to give new life for people to believe and repent and be saved. These preachers, they desperately wanted people to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And in God's kindness, he answered their prayers. So the Spirit regenerated hearts across denominations. Presbyterians, Baptists, Anglicans, Methodists, all of them saw God move mightily among them. Listen to the heart of George Whitfield, one of those preachers. He said... Oh, that I could do more for him. Oh, that I was a flame of pure oil and holy fire and had a thousand lives to spend in the dear Redeemer's service. The sight of so many perishing souls affects me much and makes me long to go, if possible, from pole to pole to proclaim redeeming love. Can't you hear George Whitfield's heart for the lost? His desire was their salvation. But we're in the book of Jonah. And George Whitfield and Jonah didn't share the same heart for their hearers. And yet, yet, they actually saw the same results. As we return to the book of Jonah, We're going to see that Jonah's preaching sparked a revival in Nineveh. He was a prophet, as you know. Back in chapter 1, the Lord said, go, and Jonah said, no. So he was hurled into the sea in chapter 2. There he sank. He was swallowed by a fish. He was spat onto dry land. Listen now as I read Jonah chapter 3. Jonah 3. and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we remember your word. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but your word, O Lord, remains forever. Help us listen and obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jonah chapter 3, we hear a short sermon, and then we see a shocking revival. But the most important truth for us to remember is a truth about God. It's that God relents when we repent. God relents when we repent. As we look at chapter 3, here's three questions that will help guide us. Three questions. First, will Jonah run? Verses 1 through 4 is the prophet going to run again? We're going to ask that. Second, will Nineveh repent? Will these pagans repent? Verses 5 through 8. The last question we'll ask, will God relent? Will God relent? Verses 9 and 10. So first, will Jonah run? Look at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Notice, if you're looking in your Bible, it's the second time. Because, as you remember from chapter 1, the first time didn't go so well. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah ran. He tried to drop out of prophetic school. But the Lord wouldn't accept his resignation. Jonah, as you know, didn't deserve a second chance. In fact, Jonah didn't really want a second chance. But, after that storm at sea... And after sitting in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, the Lord gives Jonah a second chance. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are in Christ, do you ever wish that you could just have a second chance? A fresh start. A do-over. So many conversations I can think of. I wish I could just hit a reset button. Just all that didn't happen. So many days I wish I could just redo. How does God treat us when we fail? When we just fall flat on our face? What does he do? Does he just put us on the bench permanently? Or does he give us a second chance? Friend, if you're in Christ because of Jesus and what he's done for you, God is patient toward you. He's patient. That's good news, friends. We just sang it earlier. Our sins, they are many. Many, countless. What's the next line? His anger is more. No, that's not what it says, is it? We didn't sing that, did we? His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. New every morn. You woke up this morning. Perhaps you brushed your teeth. Ate some breakfast, drank some coffee, you got new mercy today. That's how patient God is. If we look back at verse 2, we see that not only does the Lord give him a second chance, he has a message for Jonah in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now again, if you remember back to chapter 1, this might feel a bit like deja vu, Because this is exactly the same words as chapter 1. It's the same commands. Three commands again. Arise, go to Nineveh, call out against it. Now we know what happened in chapter 1. Jonah ran away after this. What will Jonah do now? Look at verse 3. You might be surprised. Jonah obeys the word of the Lord. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Chapter one, immediately Jonah disobeys all three commands. God said, arise, get up. Jonah went down, 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 all the way down to the bottom of the sea. God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, I'm going to Tarshish. God said, call out against it. Jonah said, I would rather be hurled into the sea. But here in chapter three, He immediately obeys. God said, arise. Jonah arose. God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah went to Nineveh. God said, call out against it. And in verse four, Jonah calls out. Why the sudden change in Jonah? What's going on in his mind? What's he thinking? Perhaps that stormy sea struck a little fear of God into him. It could be that those three days of solitary in that fishy prison change his heart, change his perspective. All we know at this point, though, is that God sent those marching orders and Jonah marched. In verse 3, the author tells us a little bit about Nineveh. He says that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. As you might remember from chapter 1, we talked about that Nineveh was one of those capital cities of Assyria, which is one of the enemies of Israel, In chapter 1, we learn that Nineveh was a wicked city. It was wicked enough that God said, their evil has come up before me. God saw their wickedness. Lots of scholars say that Nineveh was known for their brutality, particularly against their enemies, like the Israelites. It was extremely evil, and in chapter 3 we learn, it was exceedingly great. Today we might call it a megacity, Not like Dubai, although I love Dubai, it's a great city. It's not an exceedingly great city. You know, there's only three million people here. This would be more like Mumbai, 25 million people. Or Manila, 25 million people. Lots of people live in this city. And while most of the cities in the ancient world, you could probably visit them in a few hours, if you went to Nineveh, it would take you at least three days to see this whole city. So it was a big city, It was a wicked city. And in verse 4, Jonah enters the city. Verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This might be the shortest sermon in the Bible. In Hebrew, it's just five words. Five words. Imagine if I got up to preach this afternoon, and I said, in 40 days, Dubai is doomed. And then I sat down. And we sang the last song. Everyone went home. You know, something we do as a staff is, uh, it's called service review. We do it every Monday at 2 PM. Usually, we invite anyone who is involved in the service. The goal of it is really pastoral education. And so it's a time for the participants to receive both encouragement and critique in a godly and a humble manner. If I preach that five-word sermon today, I can just imagine the feedback that I'd receive tomorrow in service review. You know, our pastoral assistant, Carson, he'd probably say, Michael, thanks for preaching. Uh, Your sermon was three seconds long. I thought it could have been a little longer, to be honest but um, appreciate it. You know, our uh, administrative assistant, Sanjana, she might say, you know, I was a little confused when you said Dubai is doomed. What did you mean by that? It wasn't exactly clear to me. And then, you know, Pastor Mark would go last and he would say, you know, I, I agree with Carson. It was a little short. And um, you know, it did feel a little doomy and gloomy uh, you know, you also never mention anything about the gospel or how we can be saved through Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross in our place. And actually, now that I think about it, you never say anything about God in your sermon. But thanks for preaching. Jonah's sermon is a peculiar one, isn't it? Lots of people, scholars will say, you know, but he must have said other things in the sermon. But if you look at the text, we actually get what the author intends us to get out of this sermon. Five words, 40 days, judgment. We have to wonder a little, was that really the message that the Lord sent to Jonah to tell the Ninevites? And of course, we don't have the answer to that question. But in chapter 4, we get to see Jonah's, Jonah's motives while he was preaching. And maybe that will shed some light. Will Jonah run? That was the first question. It's been answered. The answer is no. Not this time. But what would become of the Ninevites after that short sentence of a sermon? That's our second question. Will Nineveh repent? Look at verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Friends, the Ninevites believed God. God makes a miracle out of that suspect sermon. Now, if you think of the book of Jonah, your mind probably goes to that fish that swallowed Jonah in chapter 2. The fish gets all depressed, and I understand. But there's a great awakening happening in Nineveh. Do you see that? It's by far the strangest miracle. Miracle. In this book, Jonah's sermon makes no mention of God, and yet they believe God. They believe God's word of judgment against them. They've responded with repentance. And it's a grassroots movement. Look, look there in verse 5. They call for a fast, they put on sackcloth, which is symbolic for mourning. The greatest repents. Look at verse 6. The word reached the king. Something's happening in Nineveh. People stopped eating. Everyone's wearing black like it's a funeral. The king's wondering, what is going on? How does he respond? Verse 6. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He was once seated on his throne. Now he sits in ashes. He was clothed with a royal robe. Now he's clothed in sackcloth. He takes it a step further. He reinforces the fast. He makes it legally binding with a royal decree. Look at verse 7. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let Let them not eat food or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The greatest repents. He issues a proclamation, everyone needs to repent. Imagine tomorrow morning, you wake up, you've got an email. It's from the Sheikh. Attention, residents of Dubai. Judgment is coming. Stop eating. No food, no water. You need to wear all black. Stop doing violence and pray to God. This message is for all UAE residents and their pets. You would think, what is going on? But a revival is happening. Bosses quit mistreating their employees. Husbands stop abusing their wives. Parents stop abusing their kids. Even the playground bullies quit. Even the cats and dogs stop fighting. And everyone, pets included, are calling out to God for mercy. What is happening in Nineveh? Friends, Jonah is, it's a surprising story of God's mercy to all. He can save anyone, anywhere, at any time. That's what this book's all about on January 6, 1850, there was a little 15-year-old boy named Charles Spurgeon walking to church. There was a blizzard that day. It was so severe that Charles was unable to go any further. So he decided, you know what? I can't make it to my church. I'm just going to go to the church down the street. And when he walked into that church, there was only about a dozen people there. The pastor actually didn't show up. He was likely snowed in too. Couldn't make it to church. So this poor shoemaker got up, steps up to the pulpit, and Spurgeon recounts the day in his autobiography. He said, the preacher was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. He didn't have anything else to say. He just opened the word and preached that text. The text that day, it was Isaiah 45:22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. So the preacher told the congregation, look to God, look to God and you'll be saved. And then at a point in the sermon, the preacher looked to the only stranger in the room, Charles Spurgeon, and he actually pointed at him. He said, young man, you look very miserable. And you will always be miserable. Miserable in life? Miserable in death, if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then the preacher shouted at him. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. And the Lord saved Spurgeon. As Spurgeon reflected on his conversion, he said, I saw what a Savior Christ was. And I did believe in that moment. God sent a snowstorm, a guest preacher, with nothing to say, except look to Christ. And God saved him. Friend, if you're not a Christian, you can look to Christ today. Look to Christ. Jonah told the Ninevites, You have 40 days, a little over a month. But what about us? I'm 31. If I live to 75, that means I have about 16,000 days left. What about you? Perhaps you have more. Maybe you have less. None of us knows. But we know this that death comes first. And then the judgment. When God judged another city, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, he rained down fire and sulfur from heaven and destroyed those residents. Friends, if you're not in Christ, there's a greater judgment that awaits you. There's a God who sees all your sin. You may have a private life, but it's public before him. He hears the murmurs of your hearts. Your thoughts, they play on his screening room. He knows you. He knows your greatest fears. He knows your greatest failures. He knows your faults. He knows you. He sees you. Perhaps at this moment, you feel guilty, shameful, unacceptable. How could... A God who actually sees me and knows me, the real me. How could he then accept me? But friends, that's the good news. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's why he came 2,000 years ago. He was preaching in Jerusalem. Instead of a great awakening in Jerusalem, they crucified him. They killed him on a cross. And though he was sinless, he bore God's judgment on behalf of sinners. Three days later, he rose again. Friend, by faith in him, you can be forgiven. I love that song we just sang. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Friend, arise. Go to Jesus. Christians, as we think about this text, this good news of the gospel fuels our repentance. Think back to the statement of faith we read on page 8. Turn there in your bulletin. Page 8, you know, it talks about repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. What is repentance? Notice here it's tied with faith. That fits what the Ninevites did. Verse 6, they believed God. Verse 8, they turned from their evil ways. Repentance and faith are really two sides of the same coin. They're both duties. You'll see that in the statement. They're duties in that there's something we do. You think of the book of Acts, countless sermons have the command, repent, you must do it. But notice in our statement of faith, there are also gifts. They're brought about in our souls by the Holy Spirit. So throughout the book of Acts also, um, you know, it says God has granted repentance. God did it. So repentance is our duty, and it's also God's gift to us. I think it's, it's helpful to think about what repentance isn't, though. It's not just saying sorry. You know, after you sin against some, someone, maybe you say something um, that was inappropriate. Um, you say, hey, I was so- I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. And then they say to you, yeah, that really hurt that you said that. You know, it, you've done that before. And they kind of go on, and you're like, hey, I said I was sorry, okay? Okay. You know, is that really being repentant? You don't really seem sorry. Repentance is not only acting sorry. You know, the Ninevites, they change their wardrobe. They're wearing uh, robes, then they're wearing sackcloth. It's possible you could just come to church and you see how Christians act, kind of see how they talk, and you try to act accordingly. But outward appearances are not guarantees of inward realities. So it's possible you may have walked an aisle at some point in your life, prayed a prayer, even been a member of a church, and you still might not be a Christian. You might not be repentant. And repentance is not only feeling sorry. Most people feel bad for their sin. Lots of people can't sleep at night because their sin haunts them. But repentance is more than a feeling. Repentance combines feeling sorry for sin with saying sorry for sin and acting sorry. It's when God convicts us. And the Spirit brings about repentance. So we feel sorrow for our sin. And then we confess our sin with our lips. And we ask for forgiveness. And then we change our ways. We turn away from sin, and we turn to Christ. Perhaps that's the best definition of repentance. Turning from your sin at the same time, turning to Jesus Christ. Once again in the book of Jonah, the example for us as believers is actually the pagans in this book. They repent, and they do it fast on day one of Jonah's preaching ministry. I wonder, friend, how quick are you to repent? Married couples, it starts off as a little fight, and then it turns into World War III. How quick are you to go to your spouse and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me? Or at the workplace, you lose your cool. And I don't know the people you work with, so, you know, maybe it was justified, but you speak harshly to your colleagues. How quickly do you go back to them and say, will you forgive me? I'm sorry for that. Parents, when's the last time you asked your kids for forgiveness and repented in front of them or children? How quickly do you ask forgiveness from your parents or from your siblings? if we want to go deeper, we have to ask the question, how do you respond when someone rebukes you? When someone points out your sin, you know, Jonah kind of waltzes into Nineveh with a word of judgment. What happens when someone points out your sin to you? Do you get defensive? Do you kind of shut down? Do you start pointing out all the things that they do, how they're a sinner? Do you critique how the message came? Maybe you claim, well, I would have been more receptive if you would have approached me in a better way. You know, I know all of these tactics well because I've been guilty of them. We all have. Pride is the one that breeds in us that defensiveness. It's humility. It's remembering the gospel that we're sinners and Christ is the righteous one. That's what breeds repentance. Here's a few more gospel motivations for repentance. If you're in Christ, friend, your guilt is washed away. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, your shame is covered. So you can drag your sin into the open because anyone who believes in Jesus will never be put to shame if you're in Christ, friend, you are forgiven. God casts all your sins into the deepest part of the sea. Martin Luther said, all of life, all of life is repentance. And the gospel fuels it. So friends, let's commit our lives to daily repentance. Will Nineveh repent? That was the second question. The answer, yes, they did. And we can too, by God's grace. But this story is not ultimately about Jonah and what he does or the Ninevites and what they do. It's ultimately a story about God. That's the last question. Will God relent? Will God relent? If you look back at the king's decree, he ends with a question. Look back at verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What a humble question. Who knows? Who knows? He didn't presume upon God. Their actions as a city, they weren't transactional. You know, they weren't thinking God will repent if you relent. God's not a cosmic vending machine. You know, you insert your repentance and out pops forgiveness. And yet the king's words in verse 9, to the original readers, they would have brought Exodus 32 to mind. In Exodus 32, the Israelites had rebelled against God. Moses interceded for them and he pleaded to the Lord. He said, Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And it's amazing. On that day in the wilderness, though the Israelites did not deserve it, God relented from disaster. But how would he respond to when Israel's enemies made that same plea to him? What would he say? The king's question Who knows? It shows his humility. You know, it's also an ironic question, though. It's an ironic question. I wonder if you saw that. It's perfectly placed by the author for us just to consider a little more carefully, if we're careful. So let's zoom out just a little bit. Up to 30,000 feet. We're just going to clear the trees just a little. We're going to peek into chapter 4, verse 2. And we're going to see that someone there knew. Someone knew. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah says, Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew the king wonders. Who knows? The prophet's right there. He knows. He knew what God would do. He knew who God was. And so just as God saw their sin, in verse 10, he sees their repentance. He sees how they turn from their evil way, and he relents. He relents from that disaster that he once said he would do. God relents when we repent. You know, we've talked about how the book of Jonah is a window into the heart of God. What do we see about God in this passage? He relents. He relents. Perhaps you're wondering, though, does this mean that God changes? You know, he said he was going to bring judgment, but then he ends up not doing it. Did the Ninevites make God relent? There's this old hymn. I think it answers the question well. I hear the words of love. It says, The clouds may come and go, and storms may sweep my sky. This blood-sealed friendship changes not. The cross is ever nigh. My love, it oft times low. My joy still ebbs and flows. But peace with him remains the same. No change Jehovah knows friends, God is not moody like you and me. He doesn't change. He's consistent. You can count on his character. There's no shadow of turning in him. So if he makes a promise, imagine this. He always keeps it. Always. So he's just. He's merciful to all people, all the time, everywhere. God relents when we repent. It was true then, it's true today. Friends, we've looked at Jonah, we've wondered if he'll run. The answer was no. We looked at the Ninevites, we asked, will they repent? We were surprised. The answer was yes. Even more surprising, God relents. But we have to ask for us, how will we respond to God's word today? My non-Christian friends, the Ninevites, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But as we read in our scripture reading, there's someone greater than Jonah here. Friend, turn from your sin. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. God relents when we repent because Christ purchased mercy for sinners by taking on God's anger, his wrath. You know, when one sinner repents, just one, Jesus said, the angels rejoice in heaven. Friend, could there be a party in heaven today because of your repentance? And church, don't you long to see sinners come to Christ? Don't you long for a great awakening in our city? Friends, let it begin with us, with our renewal, with our repentance and as sin becomes bitter christ becomes all the more sweet so lay aside your sin at the cross exchange your tears of repentance for the joy of salvation walk in the light as he's in the light and remember the ninevites repentance and god's merciful response it's a wonderful reminder to us to throw ourselves into God's merciful hands. Friends, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Let's pray. God, we see how merciful you are. You are gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And Lord, we see who we are. We're sinners. We're undeserving. We're unworthy of your mercy. And yet you sent Christ to die in our place, to forgive us of our sins. Help us now, Lord. Help us be quick to repent and quick to look to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.